Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. We're in our series on Judges, and just as a reminder, the book of Judges is about these political leaders. Judges doesn't mean like someone who's in a courtroom, it doesn't mean someone who's judgmental, it's someone that God raises up to deliver Israel from oppression and give them a military victory. Now, the reason they need a military victory is because they have not obeyed God. Over and over in the book of Judges, we see that Israel rebels against God. They do exactly what he tells them not to. They worship the idols of the nations, the false gods of the nations, rather than worshiping their God, who is the God overall. And they do it over and over again. And so God continually says to them, look, if you're going to worship the gods of those nations... I'm going to give you over to those nations so you can see what it's really like. And all of those nations are incredibly oppressive. And so after they conquer Israel, Israel cries out and says, God, help us. And over and over again, he raises judges like Gideon, judges like Deborah. Next week, we'll look at a judge named Samson who deliver uh, God's people. But over and over in this book, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And what we really see is that the people they don't get God. Like, they don't understand him. I I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you where you just feel like someone doesn't get you. Uh, When my wife and I were friends about 20 years ago, she was in a graduate program um, getting her master's in therapy, and her and the other students were doing this little Saturday seminar where they were training to do job interviews. And all of uh, my wife's friends, the students, they needed these fake bosses to come in and pretend that they were the interviewers. And so all the students would come and and give a fake interview and it would sharpen their skills. And so Virginia asked me, will you come in and will you pretend to be a fake boss? And and I was kind of like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Um, You know, I've always sort of wondered if I could pull off a role in Hollywood. You know what I mean? Like, not, it's not about being famous, but I don't know if you ever have thought about like the idea of getting a script and owning that so it's convincing. But uh, I was like, yeah, well, here's my opportunity. I'm gonna be a fake boss. So I took her up on it. And um, each boss got a different assignment. Uh, Some bosses were supposed to be the ones that talked too much and didn't let the interviewers talk at all. And so then the interviewer had to interview, he had to figure out how to navigate that. Well, I got assigned as the aloof, disinterested boss. And so when these students would come in and interview with me, I was to act like I wasn't interested in them at all. And y'all, I nailed it. (laughs) I nailed it. Like they were sitting in the chair in front of me and I wouldn't even look at them in the eye. I would look at my watch like I couldn't wait for the interview to be over with. I was like, I'm gonna win an Oscar for this, this role. Well, at the end of the day, all, all the, all, at the end of the day, they called everyone together, and all of us had taken place in one room, so everyone could kind of see everyone the whole time. And one of Virginia's friends who was leading up this day, this seminar, this practice interview, she got up and she said, I, re- I really just want to thank all the fake bosses for coming, um, but there was a, you know, a few people in particular who did really well, and I thought, well, here we go, you know, here's my Oscar moment. But then she looked right at me and she said, but a couple of you didn't really seem to care. 
Some of you were aloof and disinterested and didn't act like you cared about this project at all. And she looked right at me. Do you get what she said? I was acting as if I was aloof and disinterested and she was calling me out for acting aloof and disinterested. I had nailed it so much so that she thought I didn't even care about the project. But she was calling me out in front of everybody. I know my wife's like, you gotta stop telling this story. Like, you're not gonna win an Oscar for this thing. But I nailed it. But in that moment, I was like, I I felt so wronged because I had done exactly what she had asked me to do and I had done it so well that she had actually believed that's who I was, that I was this aloof, disinterested guy. And as that happened, I thought, man, she doesn't get me. She doesn't get what happened. She doesn't get what I'm trying to do. She doesn't get me. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where you've tried hard or you've done something and people just have not got you. That's what God is feeling as we get through the book of Judges. God is saying to Israel, you don't get me. You don't get who I am. You don't get what I'm trying to do. And we can learn a little bit about God today as we look at this story, the story of Jephthah. We can learn these things, that we don't get God when we keep side gods. That we don't get God when we try and control God, and that we don't get God when we don't trust God. Let's start off with us not getting God when we keep God's on the side. If you have your book, your judge's notebook, you can open up to page 56, chapter 10. We're going to start off on verse 6, but the verses will be up here on the screen behind me. In chapter 10, verse 6, it says, Then the Israelites again, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs, the god of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the god of the Ammonites and the Philistines. They abandoned the Lord and did not worship him. Israel is keeping gods on the side, but God is not down with Israel having side gods. Do you know the first commandment? When God brought the people out of the land of Egypt, he gave them this commandment in Exodus 20, verse three. He said, do not have other gods besides me. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where someone has treated you so poorly that they've had someone on the side. It doesn't feel good if that's ever happened to you. You can imagine from God's perspective, the one, the God who saved them out of Egypt, the God who's been merciful and gracious to them and committed himself to them, they're now choosing to have gods on the side. You and I would not be okay with that with a spouse or a partner, and God is not okay with that. That's why it's the first commandment. Do not have other gods besides me. In verse seven, it says that the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Over and over, we see what happens when people choose to have gods on the side. God allows them to pursue those gods and come to the logical conclusion of their behavior. God gives them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Those are the people of the gods that they are worshiping. 
And they find that when they pursue those side gods, they don't find freedom, they find enslavement. Chapter 10, verse eight and nine says, they, that's the Philistines and the Ammonites, shattered and crushed the Israelites that year. And for 18 years, they did the same to all the Israelites who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites and Gilead. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. Israel was greatly oppressed. Why did they pursue the gods beside God? Because they thought it would bring life. They thought it would bring freedom. But it actually brings their own oppression. Now, now I know for us, we live in the 21st century, and we look back at these cultures that are defined as being pagan. <clears throat> and we might look at these cultures and we say, well, they, they had idols that were made of stone, idols that were made of wood, and that's not really what we have in our culture. So the, thing, the whole idea of having a God on the side doesn't necessarily apply to us. But it does. Because our gods aren't necessarily made of stone or idols all the time. Sometimes they're invisible things that we're pursuing. For instance, ask this question to yourself. God doesn't work for me unless God gives me this. Whatever you fill that this with, that is a God on the side. God doesn't work for me unless God gives me blank. You're beginning to center your life on something besides God. You're beginning to function in your life with something besides God as a God. Now, a lot of times that can be a relationship. It can be a career. It can even be a good thing like your kids. Oftentimes there's something even besides that that causes us enslavement. If you were at Life Explored on Sunday night, Barry Cooper, the, the teacher in the video, had this great quote. He said this, if you worship power, every time you get passed over for a promotion or a salary rise, it eats away at you like cancer. You worship approval, and every time someone ignores you or disagrees with you, it feels like you've been cut to the heart. Worship comfort. And every imposition on your leisure time feels like life is being taken away from you. You worship control, and when things don't go your way, it makes you so angry that you feel like you could die. And that's one of the reasons that we keep going back to these gods on the side. I mean, I look at these, this story of Israel, and they like keep going back to the same gods, and I'm like, you dummies, like didn't you learn the lesson? But the truth is you and I have a hard time learning that same lesson as well. Because when our idols fail us, we tend to try even harder to get a hold of them. If you give yourself over to a relationship and it becomes dysfunctional and it doesn't work, you tend to go, if I just pursue it even harder next time. And so with something like control, when things don't go your way, it makes you so angry that you feel like you could die, you try and grab onto control even more. And that's why we keep going back to idols, and that's why idols and false gods and gods on the side ultimately don't free us, they enslave us. They enslave us. I think about one of my own friends who grew up as a Christian and sometime in his early 20s, he just said, look, I'm not doing the Jesus thing anymore. I'm done. 
And I met with him maybe after 10 years of him doing his own thing, and I just said, how's it going for you, man? Are you happy? And he's like, I really am. Like, I really am happy. I felt like when I was a Christian, I had to say no to all these things that I really wanted to say yes to. And I'm getting to do those things now. And like, I am free. It was interesting to hear him say that because like, I get to watch him on social media. And I get to see kind of what he's doing to his kids. And I get to see what happens as he's pursuing that freedom going from woman to woman. And maybe he feels free, but he doesn't see the trap that he's in. He, he doesn't see the effect yet that he's having on his kids. It feels like freedom because he's ignoring all the ways that he's enslaved to these gods on the side. And as the gods fail him, he just tries harder to get them. But the God we serve isn't someone that we have to pursue after to get. He is a God that moves towards us first and frees us from enslavement. Right before God says, do not have any other gods before me in Exodus 20, verse 3, he says in Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God says, do not have any other gods before me. Don't have any gods on the side. Right after he says, I free you from oppression. I bring salvation. I am the redeemer. I'm the one who's committed to you. I'm the one who will give you life. And so when we don't get God, we don't get him because we pursue these gods on the side. Because we forget that God's first move is to free us from slavery. We don't get God when we have gods on the side, but we also don't get God when we try to control God. Chapter 10, verse 10, as Israel's under oppression, so they cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you. We have abandoned our God and worshiped the Baals. That sounds pretty good. Like Israel's on the right track, right? But notice they never took their hand off the gods on the side. God, we admit that we're doing something wrong, but we're not gonna stop doing what's wrong. They confess, but they're not willing to abandon the gods on the side like they had abandoned the Lord because they're trying to control God. They want to press the right button, so they can get God back on their good side and still keep those gods on the side. See, they're confessing, but they're not surrendering. You and I try to control God when we confess, but we do not surrender. What the Bible calls this is the difference between worldly regret and godly surrender. Regret is about control, Repentance is about surrender. Tim Keller has these little back and forth that help us. You can put the next slide up. Regret is about discovering that sin has consequences. As soon as you sin and you realize that bad stuff follows sin, you go, oh, I'm sorry. 
But that's simply regret. That's simply that the fact that there's pain that follows your sin. But repentance has to do with discovering that your sin has come between you and God. Next slide. Regret has to do with sorrow simply over the consequences for sin, where repentance has to do with sorrow over sin coming between you and God. Regret is doing just enough behavioral change to control God, whereas repentance is surrendering up the idol, taking your hand off the idol, off the God on the side, and truly examining your heart motives. Regret is about control. Repentance is about surrender. What is it for you that maybe you confess to God, I know I'm doing some wrong things, but you've never taken your hand off that God on the side. Maybe you regret the bad consequences that that idolatry has caused you, but you've never repented from it. You've never turned away from it. You've never turned back to God. See, if you do that, if you're still trying to keep your hand on it, there is a sense where you're still trying to control God. And if you're trying to control God, you don't get God because God is uncontrollable. You can't control him, it's an illusion. Well, well, the Israelites wake up to this a little bit. In verse 11, the Lord says to the Israelites, when the Egyptians, Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and Ammonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, did I not deliver you? Again and again, he's saying, I saved you, I love you. But you have abandoned me and worshiped other gods. Therefore, I will not deliver you again. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them deliver you whenever you are oppressed. Again, part of God's judgment isn't that he comes in with a sledgehammer and wrecks his people. He simply lets them go and pursue the things that their hearts want. And what we can learn is that when you and I try to control God, we find out that we are really controlled by side gods because we're always trying to keep our hand on something that God says to let go of. Verse 15 and 16, Israelites, the Israelites said, we have sinned, deal with us as you see fit, only rescue us today. Verse 16, so they got rid of the foreign gods among them and worship the Lord. They're waking up a little bit and God became weary of Israel's misery. They're having this deeper surrender where they realize, God, we want you to deliver us, but more importantly, we realize that we need to take our hands off these gods on the sides. Do with us what you wish, but we repent and we worship you afresh. You know, I find that it's the hardest to take our hands off those side gods when life isn't going the way we want it. When life doesn't work out, when there's disappointment, and we just sort of feel in our hearts that God is cold and distant and God isn't emotionally connected to us and he doesn't really care, and so I'm afraid to step away from this false God, from this God on the side, because I don't really know if God cares. I certainly don't know what he's gonna do because he's uncontrollable. But I find it's hard when life doesn't 
work out. But maybe in that verse, there's something for us. Over and over, Israel has sinned. Finally, they get rid of the foreign gods among them and worship the Lord. Verse 16, and he became weary of Israel's misery. In the midst of them disappointing him over and over again, he still sees their pain. He's still emotionally connected to his people. He still loves them. He's still watching. He's still aware of the trials that they're in. And the challenge for us is in the midst of those temptations to keep our hands on the side gods is to let go and truly by faith go to God, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he forgives us, knowing that he'll accept us back to worship him afresh over and over and over again, no matter how many times we put our hands on the gods on the side. When we take them off, he's always there with open arms to accept us back. God is weary of Israel's misery. And at this point, you know what happens. He raises up a judge to deliver them. But it's interesting, it's kind of like Israel is not really learning their lesson as they go. Um, Rather than God directly raising up a judge, Israel wants to have a little say in the judge that he raises up. And so they go, hey listen, let's find the guy who can fight the best. Let's find like the toughest dude, and that's the one that God will raise up to deliver us from these oppressors. And that's where we're introduced to Jephthah. Chapter 11, verse one. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior. Listen to his story. But he was the son of a prostitute, and Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, that's other sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's family because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. So did you catch this guy's story? He's a fighter. He's a valiant warrior, but he has a broken story. His dad went out and slept with a prostitute, and she got pregnant, and that's where Jephthah came from. But the rest of Jephthah's family doesn't like him, so they kick him out. And they're like, you're not part of this family. So Jephthah lives out in the wilderness, and basically all these criminals gather around him, and he forms this like gang of pirates who go out and just raid and kill and steal. And that's the guy that God's going to use. The Gileadites, that's the people of God, the Israelites, they come to Jephthah and they say, okay, you're our dude, Jephthah. You're gonna lead us. You're gonna get us out of this mess. But Jephthah says to them, well, hold on a minute. Y'all didn't like me. Y'all didn't like me because I was the son of a prostitute. And I have this gang of pirates that I hang out with. But now, all of a sudden, when you really need me, like you need my gang of pirates, you want me to come in and help you. Is that what I'm hearing correctly? And what's interesting is that the people of God are treating Jephthah just like they treat God. Like, Jephthah, we want you on our terms just like we want God on our terms. Now, God's still going to use it, but it's worth pointing out that 
that as these people try and control God, so they're trying to control Jephthah. Jephthah's a shrewd negotiator, and so he negotiates the terms with the Israelites, and then, and then he tries to even negotiate peace with the king of their oppressor. And as he negotiates, it's like 25 verses, we won't read them, but at the end, he does this great negotiating, and at the end, the king of the oppressor is still like, sorry, we're coming to get you guys. Turn two pages over to page 64. So battle it is. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 29. The spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Then skip down to verse 32. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed the Ammonites over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter from Erori all the way to the entrance of Manith and to Abel Karamin. So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. He did it. They picked the right guy. This violent man was able to deliver them, and they used the word slaughter. And it would be a great story because Jephthah seems to have this desire to please God, this faith in God. But at the same time, Jephthah doesn't get God. We skipped over a couple verses that are going to make our stomachs squeam. Chapter 11, verse 30, go back up. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, Whoever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. God's spirit is already on Jephthah. God is going to use Jephthah to deliver his people from this oppressor. And Jephthah says, you know what? I better make sure this is a sure thing. I better try to control God. So God, if you give me victory, when I come home, the first person that comes out my door, I will offer as a sacrifice to you. Yeah, it's meant to make our stomachs squirm. Jephthah doesn't get God because he's trying to control God when God has already committed himself to Jephthah. God's already gonna give him the victory. His spirit's on them. He is committed to Jephthah, yet Jephthah is trying to get something from God. Jephthah doesn't get who God is because he's trying to get something from God, not realizing that God has given himself to Jephthah. Jephthah is trying to control God because he doesn't trust him. And that's the last thing. We don't get God when we don't trust God. God has never not done what he said he's gonna do. Everything that God has promised, he is committed to keep. God will never leave you nor forsake you. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your hardships, in the midst of your challenges, God is never not there. He's always there. He's always trustworthy. So what happened? Why did Jephthah make this ridiculous vow? Well, he has learned about God, not from God's word, 
but from the surrounding culture around him. See, that type of thing was very normal. If you're going into battle, I'll sacrifice a child to ensure that I win in victory. You don't find that in God's word. You find that in the cultures that surrounded Israel, and Jephthah has been influenced by those cultures. But if he had trusted God by reading his word, he would find out that God not only doesn't like human sacrifice, God forbids human sacrifice. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 30 and 31, it says, be careful not to be ensnared by their ways after they have been destroyed before you. Do not inquire about their gods, asking how did these nations worship their gods? I'll also do the same. You must not do the same to the Lord your God because they practice every detestable act which the Lord hates for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Had Jephthah realized what God's word said, he would have been able to trust God with the victory in the battle rather than relying on what the culture around him says. So he wins the battle and he comes home. Verse 34, when Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. Do you get what just happened? She's the first one out the door. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, no, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. This is such a bizarre story. We're in like an alternate universe here. Because even in this, there is provision in the Old Testament law that if you realize you made a really stupid vow, you don't have to follow through with it. You can go and have atonement made for the sin of making a stupid vow and God forgives you. But, God, but Jephthah doesn't get God. He's been so influenced by the culture around him that he thinks, I have to sacrifice my daughter or God will get me. He's been so influenced by the culture around him that he's ignorant to who God is. And then in verse 36, then his daughter said to him, my father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites, she also said to her father, let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. So she's, she finds out what her, the vow that her dad has made and is like, well, you gotta do it. You gotta keep your word to the God. Not, not realizing that God forbids the very thing that her dad has made a vow to do. And she says, listen, just let me do one thing. I'm gonna go out in the woods and I just need to spend two months with my friends and the fact that I'm gonna die without ever having been married, that's really sad because I won't have children and then dad, your line will die, which was really important. So let me go and mourn for two months. In verse 38, Jephthah says, go. And he sent her away for two months. So she left with her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he had made about her. She had never been intimate with a man. Now it became custom in Israel that four days each year, the young woman of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Whew. 
What do we do? What do we do with this story? We see the importance of getting God from his word. If Jephthah had known what God said, he would have never made that rash vow, and he would have never followed through with that vow. Because Jephthah doesn't get God, his daughter dies. And his story is over because it is his only child, and his line is dead. I told you Judges gets darker and darker as we go. Jephthah doesn't get God, and so his story ends in darkness. But because Jesus is our God, our story begins with hope and light. Jesus is God, yet he came to worship, he came to die for those who worship false gods. Jesus didn't come for the good people. Jesus came for the idolaters and the people who worship gods on the side. Jesus is God, and he cannot be controlled, yet he freely offers himself as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. You can't control Jesus, yet he willingly goes to the cross for you to pay for your sin. He cannot be controlled, yet he is committed to love you for eternity. And that makes Jesus, who is God, absolutely worthy of your trust. Absolutely worthy of your trust. See, when you understand Jesus, you get it. But it's not just that you get knowledge or you get a certain perspective on life. When you trust Jesus, you get God. Not like just intellectually, you get a relationship with God. You get the presence of God. You got God living in you. So he says, never will I leave you nor forsake you. You get God. Through Jesus Christ, the God of heaven is yours. Through Jesus Christ, a holy God is yours. Through Jesus Christ, you get God who raises the dead. The God who makes demons flee is yours. You get God the God who goes by the name I am. You cannot control him. He will not have a God. He will not let you have a God on the side, but he is absolutely trustworthy and he fully gives himself to you. Friends, you and I constantly struggle to get God here and here. We're constantly keeping our hands on side gods. We're constantly questioning God. We're constantly struggling to trust him. But God is fully in with you. He is absolutely committed, not because you're good, but because he's gracious and he loves you. And when you know Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, the uncontrollable king, the most powerful one, becomes the one who says, I am yours and you are mine. Through Jesus Christ, you get God. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.